Well, what a week. Uh, honestly, I wasn't quite sure what to expect this morning uh, with the cold weather and with the ice. I didn't know how many would uh, be in person here this morning. Even though most of the ice has melted away, it's still cold outside, and yet here you are in person. Uh, this is the brave remnant who decided to venture out into the cold this morning. Uh, by the way, for those of you watching online, I'm not necessarily calling you unbrave or cowardly. Uh, you are perhaps the wise, uh, the wise that stayed home in the comforts of their heated homes and warm blankets. Uh, but we have here this morning in person and online both the brave and the wise. The brave and the wise, and both are important as we venture into this next sermon in this series on Engage, as we think about engaging the lost with the gospel, it takes both bravery and wisdom. It takes bravery and wisdom as we think about sharing our faith and sharing the gospel. It takes a little bit of bravery because we've all been in those positions where we've had an opportunity to share our faith and, and it's scary. It's intimidating. So it takes a little bravery to share our faith. It also takes a little wisdom to share our faith because uh, what if we get asked a question and we don't know the answer to? And so uh, we certainly need to know the message and the content of the gospel in order to share our faith. And as we, again, continue this series entitled Engage, this week we're talking about how to engage people with the gospel, with the life-giving message of the gospel of Jesus. And um, I hope that this morning our passage here in Romans chapter one is gonna help us do that a little bit more. And so grab your bulletin, if you will. Uh, notice the outline, how we're gonna look at Romans chapter one, verses 16 to 32 together this morning as we think about uh, what it is to engage people with the gospel. Here's what we're gonna do. Uh, number one on your outline, we're actually gonna take this a little bit out of order. The first thing we're gonna see is the problem. The problem of God's wrath revealed. This is Romans 1, 18 to 32. Then we're gonna take a look, number two on your outline, at God's righteousness revealed. We'll back up and look at verses 16 and 17. And then we'll talk about the application, which is God's church engaged. So grab your Bible. Let's start with number one on your outline, the problem of God's wrath revealed. Let's begin Romans chapter one, starting in verse 18. Notice what Paul says. Paul says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Let's pause right here. Starting in verse 18 of Romans chapter one, Paul begins to explain our need for salvation. He begins to explain our need for salvation and it's clear to us that we live in a fallen world. A world, if you will, that has gone cold towards its creator. And all around us is evidence of the fall. Things are not as they are supposed to be. Things are not as God intended them to be. And it's because we human beings have lost sight of our purpose. Remember, in previous weeks, we talked about how we're all created in the image of God. We were designed by God to be his image bearers, to fill his earth uh, by bearing his image as his representatives. 
But we also saw the problem of our sin, how we have begun to make a name for ourselves and it's become about us rather than him. And uh, here in Romans chapter one, we really see the fallout of those decisions. What has become of the world, God's creation, because of the sin that we have brought in? And God's wrath, Paul says here in verse 18, is revealed. There's a few big words I want you to notice here in verse 18. Paul says, for the wrath of God is revealed. And that's the first big word I want you to see here. Uh, The word revealed here, notice, is in the present tense. And so when we think of God's wrath, we often think of the wrath in the future, the wrath that will one day come, and certainly that is true. But here in verse 18, Paul is also highlighting the present wrath of God, that God's wrath is revealed. Again, the the effects of the fall, the natural consequences of our sin, it's evident before us. It's right before our eyes. And God has revealed his wrath. His present wrath, though, is a picture, a small piece of the future wrath that is to come. It's the first big word I want you to see. The second big word is that word wrath. Paul says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. The wrath of God. The wrath of God is kind of an unpopular idea today. We don't like to think about the wrath of God. But the wrath of God, what I hope you see here in Romans chapter 1, when we see the wrath of God revealed and the righteousness of God revealed, these are really two sides of the same coin. In other words, because God is righteous, he must also be wrathful. To see what we have done... And to do nothing about it would negate God's righteousness. Because God is righteous, he must do something about sin. And that's why Paul brings up here the wrath of God. We'll talk more about the wrath of God in a bit. The third thing I want you to see here in verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed, noticed, from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men. The wrath of God presently is directed against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Again, God allows his wrath to be aimed against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's the bad news. The good news we'll talk about in a little bit is that although God is against sin... He's provided a way of salvation for sinners, right? And so what I want you to see just here is that God aims this wrath against ungodliness and unrighteousness, but ultimately we'll see later that he desires the salvation of us. But then notice as well why. Again, verse 18. Why does God's wrath come against ungodliness and unrighteousness? Notice this. Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This word for suppression is an interesting word. It really highlights the fact of a willful disobedience that we have set aside, we have suppressed the truth of who God is, of what he has revealed, and this is why God allows the consequences of sin to be poured out over this world. The wrath of God, Paul says, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Why? Because we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Well, notice how has God 
Or how have we, excuse me, how have we suppressed God's truth? Notice verses 19 and 20. How is it that we have suppressed the truth in our unrighteousness? Verse 19 and 20 tells us how. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have clearly been seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. What's Paul getting at here? Paul is showing here in these verses that one of the ways we have suppressed the truth is when what theologians talk about um, general revelation. Theologians talk about special revelation and general revelation. Special revelation is how God has revealed himself through his word, through his son, through his spirit. But general revelation or natural revelation is how God has revealed himself through uh, things that are evident to all, known to all, like the creation itself. And this is what Paul is getting at here. Notice what is known about God is evident within them. God made it evident to them. In verse 20, since the creation of the world... God's invisible attributes, his power, his nature have clearly been seen, Paul says. In other words, God created this world. A few weeks ago, we talked about how God created the world. He brought form to the formless. He brought substance to the emptiness. And God created his world in such a way that we were to look at the creation and naturally come to the conclusion, someone greater than me must have created this. God created the world in such a way that the natural conclusion when we observe all of the creation is to come to the ultimate conclusion that someone greater than I have created this. But Paul says that instead of that, we've suppressed this truth. It's not that God hasn't done a good enough job of making himself known. The problem is we have suppressed the truth that he has revealed. And so Paul says here, therefore, we are without excuse. And then notice continuing in this thought, verse 21, Paul says, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. So how is it that we're without excuse? How is it Paul can say, listen, all human beings everywhere are without excuse. He says here, notice, that even though they knew God, they didn't honor him or even give thanks. Not only did we not know God or honor him or give thanks, but it's this downward spiral that we begin to see here in Romans chapter one. He says here that, We became futile in our speculations. Our foolish hearts were darkened. Both our heart and our mind, both created to know and to love God, have been corrupted. In other words, Paul's progress of thought here is that things have gotten from bad to worse. Things have gotten from bad to worse. And listen, I think this has only continued as we have as some would say, progressed or evolved as human beings. I think that our suppression of the truth has only gotten worse and worse. This downward spiral has only gotten worse. I mentioned to you uh, 
couple months ago, a philosopher by the name of Charles Taylor wrote a really important book entitled A Secular Age. And in it, the very first paragraph, he talks about how 500 years ago in the Western world, it was unimaginable to find someone who didn't believe in God. And yet now, only 500 short years later, it's almost unimaginable to find someone who does, right? Think of, of how bad things have gotten even over the course of the last 500 years. In Paul's day, by the way, uh, Paul is a Jew and Jews had a theistic worldview. They believed in, in the one true God, right? And even the pagans, the Romans of Paul's world, they were theistic in their worldview as well. They believed in the Greek and Roman gods. Ladies and gentlemen, we can't even make that assumption today. Many of the people that we are engaging with your coworkers, your neighbors, even people in your family, you can't even assume that they have a basic theistic worldview. Things have gotten from bad to worse. Our futile speculations, our darkened hearts has only gotten worse and worse. Notice, for instance, verse 22. Paul says, professing to be wise. And don't we do that? Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. I mean, notice just how far, far we have fallen from our original created intent to be God's image bearers, to spread out over the world and to bear his image, to represent him. Now notice what we've done. We've come to this exchange, this unimaginable exchange Paul talks about here, where we have exchanged the image of a glorious God and have instead bowed our knee to the creation itself. We've bowed our knees, notice Paul said, to the image in the form of a corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. In other words, instead of walking outside and, seeing, and saying, man, this is amazing, someone greater than I must have created this, I wanna worship him. Instead, what has happened over time is we walk outside, we see the creation and say, wow, I'm gonna worship this. I'm gonna worship this. And Paul here is highlighting the absurdity of this. How, how far we have fallen from our created intent. And so notice what Paul does next. He established is now our foolishness and now he tells us what God has done. Having established our foolishness, he now tells us what God has done. And starting in verse 24, we're gonna see this phrase repeated three times. God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over. The present way that God's wrath is revealed is in God giving us over to the things we have chosen. The present way the wrath of God is revealed is by handing us over to our passions, our desires, and our choices, allowing us to bear out the consequences of our sin. Notice what Paul says starting in verse 24. He says, therefore God gave them over. There's that first time we see this phrase. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie 
and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Notice the first time, again, Paul says this phrase, God gave them over. The way God's wrath is revealed is by God giving us over, here Paul says, to impurity. The word for impurity here is a very general term. Again, Paul's idea here is that God lets us bear out the consequences of our sin. He says, all right, if you want to head down this path, go for it. See where it leads. If you want to head down the path of idolatry and worshiping the creation rather than the creator, then then let's do that. Go for it. And Paul says, God gave us over to impurity, this dishonorable conduct. But I want you to notice something in here that's, I think, very important. The way Paul writes this, he's presenting God truly as the just judge. He's presenting God as the just judge, giving us precisely what we deserve, precisely what we have chosen for ourselves. God says, you want to head down that road? Go for it. Starting in verse 26, we see the second time Paul uses this phrase, God gave them over. Notice verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For the women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty for their error. Here, obviously, we come to a a very controversial passage in light of our present culture. And Paul addresses this issue of homosexuality. Um, A couple things I want you to see here. Paul's major point in this section, the second time he uses this phrase, God gave them over. What Paul, I think, is showing here is that when we exchange God for the creation or for ourselves... Not only do we lose God, but we lose sight of his created intention for us. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about God's created intention for us to spread out, to fill the earth as his image bearers. He said, be fruitful and multiply. And Paul here in these verses shows that uh, homosexual uh, activity, he says it's both unnatural, and he says ultimately, it receives in their own persons the due penalty of their error. It accomplishes nothing. It's a rejection of the created intent that God has for man and for woman. Again, this is obviously a cultural hot-button issue right now. And we think about the cultural shift that has taken place in the last even decade over this topic. It's amazing. It's astounding. The truth that has been suppressed What was even 10 years ago uh, socially unacceptable is now becoming not only accepted but even celebrated. And churches have not not always done a great job responding. Uh, Some churches have tried to respond by ignoring what I think is evident here in this passage that Paul clearly sees Homosexual behavior as a sin. Notice again, he says it's a degrading passion or literally a dishonorable desire. Clearly not uh, not God's intent for us. 
But on the other hand, I do want to caution, caution us against another type of response. And that is when we read what Paul says here about homosexuality, Paul's intent is not for us to climb up on our high horses and to look down in a spirit of judgmentalism and moral superiority. The point Paul is making in Romans chapter one as well as in Romans chapter two when he talks about the moral person and the Jew, the point Paul is making is that all of us are sinners. All of us are deserving of God's wrath, whether we're homosexual or a gossip. At the end of the day, call spade a spade and call sin, sin. So let me be clear so there's no confusion. This does not mean that we ignore, tolerate, or celebrate sin. It's not what I'm saying at all. The point is, as we keep reading the book of Romans, that we address, we emphasize, we celebrate the redemption that we have in Jesus, the righteousness of Christ that's imputed to our account, no matter what sin issue you wrestle with. That's the second time Paul mentions this phrase, God gave them over. The third we see starting in verse 28. Paul says, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Again, notice the third time Paul says God gave them over. God says this is the life you choose. You want to walk down that path of ungodliness, of suppressing the truth, this is what you get. This list of horrors that we see here in verses 28 to 31 shows what happens when we keep walking down this path of unrighteousness and suppress the truth of God. Uh, rather than defining each and every one of these terms, I think they're pretty self-explanatory. Again, I want to highlight the major point Paul is making here and then uh, call your attention to a few minor themes but again, the first major point that Paul is making here is that this is what happens when we walk down that path of unrighteousness. As we have corrupted the world with our sin, this is what we get. The world that God created as good, that we have corrupted, these words describe what it is to live when we're in charge. I was talking to Rob Armstrong uh, this morning, he was making copies in the church office, and he said this. I thought this was brilliant, so I'm going to steal it from him. But he said, you will never find in sin what you enter sin to find. You will never find in sin what you enter sin to find. And what we see here in this, again, list of horrors in these verses is what we ultimately will get when we choose a life of sin. But there are a few major themes I want to highlight here for you. I think a way Paul breaks down um, this list of particular sins, there's 21 items here listed. And the first four, that is unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, and evil, really show the depth and breadth of human depravity. These are general terms that really describe the breadth and the depth of human depravity at its best. 
And then in the second set, the next five words, envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice, this really shows what we do to one another. The actions, the sins we commit against one another. And then the third list, 12 words, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, These words refer not so much to actions more as to people. These are the types of people we become as we choose this life of sin. But then notice the icing on the cake, verse 32, a verse that I think describes our culture quite well. Paul says, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, notice this, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Right, Paul lists out uh, these horrific sins, and then he says in verse 32, we see one another do it and we applaud. Well done. And literally, this is happening in our world, right? Right? We live in a world where good is called evil and evil is called good, and we're seeing more and more of this today. So this is all the bad news. The wrath of God is revealed, Paul says. This is the bad news, but there's good news as well. The good news is that the righteousness of God is also revealed, that God is eager to defer his wrath. We've been reading through uh, the Chronicles of Narnia as a family and uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And even last night we were reading it, I came to one of my favorite quotes in the entire Chronicles of Narnia series. It's in the scene early in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when the children first hear of Aslan, the great lion. And you probably recall the scene with me When Lucy asks, when she hears about Aslan, she says, is he a man? Asked Lucy. Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's any who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. One of the things we see here in Romans chapter one is that God is not safe. He's holy. Because he's holy, he's wrathful. But he's righteous and he's good. And to that, let's turn our attention to number two on your outline, the solution. Backing up to verses 16 and 17. I wanted you to see the bad news before we look at the good news. Let me read for you the good news, Romans 1, 16 and 17, what many people call the theme verses of the book of Romans. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. 
For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. A couple real important terms I want you to see here in Romans 1, 16 and 17. The first word is that word ashamed. Notice Paul says there in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. We're going to come back to this word ashamed here in just a few minutes. But uh, there's definitely this honor-shame dynamic that Paul is laying out here in Romans chapter 1. And we'll talk more about that later. But Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Notice what he says. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. The power of God for salvation. The power that Paul is describing here, he's referring to the life-giving power, the power that comes from God that takes us from the deadness of our sin to the resurrection life of Jesus. The bad news is that our world is very bad off. That our world is broken, that it is fallen, that it is filled with the things we just saw about. But the good news is that there is a power that can overcome sin and even death. And for that reason, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God, notice, for salvation, he says. It is the power of God for salvation. And the word salvation in the book of Romans, it's used in all three ways of describing our salvation from the penalty of sin, which we describe as justification. He uses it in Romans to describe uh, the salvation from the power of sin, which we refer to as sanctification. And Paul also uses this term salvation to refer to freedom or salvation from even the presence of sin itself, which we call glorification. And throughout the book of Romans, Paul develops all three of these ideas, our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification, that God has saved us from the penalty of sin, that he is saving us from uh, the power of sin in our life, and one day he will ultimately save us from the very presence of sin in our life as well. And for this reason, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. In verse 17, he explains, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Notice the repetition of the word revealed. Earlier we saw the wrath of God revealed. Here we see in the gospel the righteousness of God revealed. The righteousness of God in the book of Romans is a very important word as well, a very important phrase. Um, it can be used to describe um, the uh, uh, character of God, that he is righteous. It can be used to describe uh, the activity of God, that he does righteous things, but uh, most, uh, I think, important for us or maybe most relevant to our salvation is it also describes uh, the verdict that God declares over us, that we are righteous. He declares us righteous even as fallen sinful beings as we are. And all three of these ideas, again, Paul develops throughout the book of Romans he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. And notice that phrase, from faith to faith, or faith from first to last, as the NIV puts it, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. The righteousness of God, Paul says, is revealed wherever faith in Jesus is found. And to back this up, he quotes from the book of Habakkuk, that the righteous man 
will live by faith. And so in light of what Paul is saying here, I want to pause as I do each week and ask you in this room and those of you watching online, if you've believed this message, that our world is broken because we are broken, that we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. That is a major problem. That is the fundamental problem. But here we see the solution, that the righteousness of God is revealed and that to any who believes, Jew or Greek, Paul says here, the very righteousness of God can be imputed or credited to your account. That Jesus on the cross took away your sin and your shame, but when you put your faith in Jesus, God imputes the very righteousness of God to your account. And if you've never truly considered that, that exchange, uh, I beg you, where you are in this room or watching online, simply to consider that and to trust in him. So this is number one and number two on your outline. The problem of God's wrath revealed, the solution of God's righteousness revealed. Let's talk quickly about number three on your outline, the application God's church engaged. As we take a look at these verses here, again, there's a few things I want you to notice. Notice, again, the repetition of that word revealed. We see the wrath of God revealed. We see the righteousness of God revealed. And notice Paul's argument as we trace through the repetition of this word. If what Paul is, say, is saying here is true, and we believe that it is, that we really are as bad off as Paul describes here, but if the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, then it only makes sense that we proclaim this message. That's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of it. This is the one thing that can bring hope to this world that has gone cold toward its creator. We see that in this repetition and Paul's logic as he lines out his argument here in these verses. That's the first thing I want you to see. But the second thing I want you to see is again this shame and celebration dynamic, this honor and shame idea that Paul laces through his argument here. I told you we're gonna come back to this word ashamed. What's amazing to me as I look at these verses and I see it in the context of our current culture, the very things Paul lists here that are ultimately to our shame are the things we're currently celebrating, right? We're celebrating the things that are the evidences of and the reasons for God's wrath. And on the other hand, the only thing that brings hope, the power of the gospel, the very righteousness of God, I'll admit for myself, I'm often ashamed to proclaim. I'm scared. And I'm sure I speak for many of you in this room. The conviction that I came to this week that often I'm ashamed of the gospel. How often I shrink back because I'm afraid, because I don't know what to say, because I think it depends on me, on my courage or in the articulation of my argument instead of just depending on the very power of the gospel that we proclaim. Back in 
2013, a man by the name of Eric Geiger wrote an article on why people are not sharing their faith. And what he found in that article was not really that we're ultimately afraid or that we don't know what to say. These are often kind of the excuses we give, but he found uh, as a result of this article that really what we need is to realize that we've lost our sense of awe and appreciation for the gospel. It's become just kind of second nature to us that we've lost the awe and our appreciation of the gospel itself. And uh, for all of us, we need to keep rehearing this message. We need to keep on hearing and allowing God to stir within us the hope of this incredible message. This is why I share the gospel every weekend. This is why we take communion because we need to be reminded of the very message, the only message that brings hope to our world. Um, But like I said, um, the world has definitely changed. In the course of the last 500 years, our culture has shifted in many ways. And so I wanna give you something really practical to do. Because again, all of us are engaging with unbelievers. All of us have people in our life and we wrestle with, okay, what do I say? How do I present the gospel uh, in our current culture and climate? And I wanna share with you these words uh, from a man, James Emery White. I found this to be very helpful. He says this, he says, there's only one argument for the Christian faith, one apologetic that is unanswerable, meaning there is no rebuttal. There is no way anyone could ever argue against it. He says, it's your story. No one can ever argue, he says, that what happened to you didn't happen to you. They can't say that your life wasn't changed. The one unanswerable apologetic is this, I am a life that has been changed by Jesus. He says, no matter who you might be talking to, whatever opening you might have, no matter how many questions you might be asked that you don't know the answer to, you can always say this, listen, I don't have answers to all your questions, but I do know what my life was like before Jesus, and I know what it is like now that I follow Jesus, and I would never ever go back to what my life was before. I was saved in every way a person can be saved. It changed who I am from the inside out. It changed my marriage. It changed the way I parent. My entire life went from being crazy to amazing. I had so many broken relationships, destructive patterns. They've all been healed. And if that can happen for me, it can happen to you. I know God is real and alive and personal because I have a real and alive and personal relationship with him. He says, no one can argue against your story. They can only listen to it. So when was the last time you shared it? And ladies and gentlemen, that's what I want you to do this week. Your one thing that I offer to you this week for application, one thing that I will do myself, your one thing for this week at the top of your outline is to pray for and look for an opportunity to engage someone this week with the gospel. If you don't know what else to say, tell them your story of how Jesus changed your life. Give them the reason for the hope that is within you. Give them the goodness of the gospel because the reality is we do live in a world that's gone cold to its creator. But what we see here in Romans 1 is that there is a power available to our dark and cold world, the power of the gospel that brings salvation. We might need a little courage. We might need a little wisdom. 
But the truth is we have the power of the gospel. So go engage, go share the gospel, go share with how the world with how Jesus has changed you. Give people a reason for the hope that's within you. Let me pray. Father, thank you uh, for the power of the gospel. And God, I confess uh, how often I allow my lips to be stilled when I ought to be proclaiming the message, the only message that brings hope, that brings life, that brings power to all who believe. And so, Father, I pray for myself. I pray for each one here. I pray for Grace Bible Church as we go out this week and engage that you would give us the faith to see the power of the gospel, the very message that brings people from death to life. Fill us all with an awe and an appreciation of what Jesus has done for us. And God, help us this week as we cross paths with other people to not be ashamed, but to celebrate, to exalt the goodness of who you are, the salvation of your son. In his name we pray, amen.